Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. The amazing Patty Armbruster is going to offer the most incredible composting class you'll ever take completely online Saturday, July 18th. 2020 it's only 37 dollars, and you will get a seat you will get a copy of the replay you will get to pick her brain question and answers um we are just gonna rock the composting how to do composting the most efficient effective and best way to improve the results in your garden today welcome to the green organic gardener podcast it is friday june 12 2020 and Robin Kelson is back on the line to join us today and talk about some of the amazing stuff she's been learning and doing and practicing and teaching people and just um, about her garden journey the last few summers because I don't think we've talked to you in a couple of years and just uh, welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you, Jackie. It's a delight to be here. Um, always love the work you do. So happy to be back. Thanks. Well, I love everything you've always got going on. I can't even believe we didn't see each other at Free the Seeds, or if we did, it was even for like a second. I don't think we did. I didn't see you or Patty, I don't think. It yeah, was so... Not. I was down in Boothland for the first time down there. Oh, so, good for you. Um, yeah, trying to sell my, or at least show off my, um, the Organic Oasis Master Guidebook. The Organic awesome. Oasis Guidebook. I can't even think of what it's called anymore. Anyway, I am just like, this has been a long week. We finished school on Tuesday, and then, like I said, I was just cleaning, cleaning, cleaning for three days. My goal was to be finished at noon right today when we got on. I am kind of close, but kind of still far away. I have to do, like, the main regular rooms, like the kitchen and the bathroom and the regular part but like i did like the deep clean the super purge like marie kondo would be proud of me and how many things i got rid of i've been listening to my new favorite podcast is called the clutter bug and this woman Cass, and she she talks about like you don't think like one little thing tucked away in this drawer and one little thing tucked away in that drawer is a big deal but they're taking up all the space for all the things that you've used in everyday life and it just i don't know i've been hearing a lot of i don't know why i because i needed to clean my house <laughs> I guess or something. I'm just on a binge. But anyway, that's like off topic too. But um we set this up a couple of weeks ago because you were on the Beauty of Conflict podcast and you had this great um you know, you just talked about like what is like disruptive change and like since you were on that podcast, I think is when all the um things with George Floyd and a lot of the things that are going on today have happened different than just the regular pandemic craziness. Yeah, Is it's been true? pretty crazy. Yeah. So so do you want to talk about like intelligence and resilience and what people sure. can do and maybe what it means and I don't know. Want to tell like I have a lot of new listeners. Want to tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Um sure. So um I have worn many hats in my adult life um among them as the biochemist and an attorney who was actually um, with an area of expertise in intellectual property law. So I come from that background back in the day, about 20 some odd years ago. Um, And I've just also been very interested in um, what constitutes 
resiliency, really, um, although I didn't call it that back then and got very interested in what was at the core of what was uh, what I was seeing about 30 years ago as um, an epidemic of chronic disorders in our culture, you know, in terms of our physical bodies and our physical uh, impacts to our bodies. And I, I didn't understand it and I couldn't get any um, satisfaction, if you will, from the Western medical or chemical or scientific approach. And so I just decided to look into it. Um, and that's led me lots of places and I've done lots of things, um, including working with the startup on creating soil enhancements and um, for renourishing the soil. And, and now most recently as the owner of a company called the Good Seed Company that sells heirloom seeds uh, adapted to our region in Montana where we live and specifically dedicated to reestablishing the community practice of selecting, saving, and sharing seeds for common use because without seeds, we don't have food. Without food, we don't eat. Without eating, we are not nourished and we don't um, keep the species going. <laughs> and that's my goal. So, um, and I'm also a co-executive director of ARA, which is a statewide sustainability organization in the state of Montana. We have been just, you know, metal to the pedal, particularly in response to the COVID pandemic and its impact on the food system in the state of Montana. So there's a lot of work going on on all the work that so many organizations in our state have been doing for decades on resiliency and sustainability. But now is the opportunity to really take advantage of the fact that every single Montanan has been impacted by it. And there's a, a significant opportunity for really rebuilding our food supply. We used to grow 70% of our own food up until about 90, 1950, and now we're down to seven. So there's lots of room for improving that, and Arrow's part of that process. Um, so that's a little bit about me, but uh, part of all of that and my journey is, as, I, as you mentioned, just really a curiosity about uh, resiliency. And I, my particular interest is in the examples that are, already exist in nature. And so I have been working and studying that just because it intrigues me for probably about 30 years. And um, I, I, I've been talking about it recently um, from my own perspective, because there's lots of, there's a really good um, system available to us for developing our a resiliency mindset and I call that developing our resiliency intelligence and so that's what I spoke about on this other podcast you mentioned and be happy to chat about here perfect because I still think there's probably because I didn't really ever hear the word resiliency to we you and I went to the arrow um workshop back in October of 20 I don't know 14 or 16 or sometime um, so do you want to like, if listeners are like, what is resiliency to begin sure. with and then, and then expand upon yeah. is, like developing resilience intelligence? Yeah. And so, so I think it's good to start with defining sustainability or sustainable and resilient. And they are different. They're two different terms and they both have value and, um, a place in the conversation today. So if you think about a system and you can think about a system in nature or uh, a mechanical system, but let's look at one in nature, a, sustain, a sustainable system is a system that um, can keep going over time. And 
the more uh, the the more that the inputs to the system are locally accessible and renewable, the more sustainable that system. So if we just think about, I don't know, let's look at a farm, say, and if they're, if, so they need, in order to grow food, they need seeds um, and they need uh, uh, nourishment for the soil and they need uh, power, right? A power source for their, they have water, underground and they need to power the well let's say so if they're if they save their own seed that's that means that their seeds are locally accessible and renewable as long as they keep growing the seeds and saving them that's a sustainable way of having access to seeds um, if they make their own soil amendments through compost and uh, maybe worm castings and things of that nature that's locally accessible and renewable as opposed to buying chemical fertilizers or even compost that comes from Canada by way of Texas, you know, like that's just not sustainable. That's not local. Um, and then the third one would be if your power for your uh, water well is wind or electric or solar or something like that, you know, that's locally accessible and renewable. It's not dependent on getting access to, um, you know, uh, gas or fuel, you know, something like that. If you had an electric uh, tractor or your tractor was uh, powered by diesel that comes from the plants that you grow, biodiesel, that's more renewable, that's more locally accessible. So that's just, and that makes that system sustainable. So that's the definition of sustainable. And the definition of resilient really is the ability to be responsive and move through disruptive change. And disruptive change is defined as being unpredictable and having a high impact or high risk associated with it. So common examples that we think of, you know, at in the natural world, shifts of the tectonic plates, you know, tsunamis, um, the meteor that hit the planet back you know, way back when, um, ice ages, all of those are uh, disruptive changes that have a high impact and are, are not really predictable. I don't know, maybe, maybe the ice age was predictable. I don't really know, but, but you know what I'm saying. Um, that you don't have the opportunity exactly. to plan for it. So that's what makes it disruptive. You can't plan for it and it has a high impact. And I like to tell people like we think of high impact, high risk as a negative. And it's important to understand that um, disruptive change can also be positive. So if you win the lottery and all of a sudden you go from making, you know, $2,500 a month to getting a check for $250 million, that is a disruptive change that has high risk and high impact on your life. It's really impossible to plan for that shift in your experience. Or I like to say before that first baby shows up at your house, you can think you're planning for it during those nine months you're pregnant, but there is absolutely no way to understand the impact a new person in your, in your life is until that actually happens. That's a great one. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the definition that I work with in terms of resiliency. And this resiliency intelligence is uh, stems from an understanding that uh, systems in nature, so nature's been around a really, 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 really long time, and all the systems in it that are still around today and all the species that are in it that are still around today are, by definition, resilient. They're, they're still here. That means they have survived and been able to adapt to 
lots of examples of disruptive change. And so if we look at them, we have some opportunities to see what is it that they're doing that has supported their capacity to be resilient and what is it that we could use from those learnings to apply to how we as humans uh, work on this planet. Because really of all the species in our current form, we have, we've, we're kind of the youngest kids on the block by a long shot. And so that's, that's the conversation and that's, that's the opportunity for us. Um, you want me to just keep going? Yeah, this is great. Okay. And I like the way, like, at first I was thinking, like, resiliency, that the disruptive change was only, like, on this grand scale. But then when you talked about it could be a baby, that kind of, like, brought it back to, like, something that's very applicable right now. Oh, yeah. So the reason I talk about this is that, so I'm going to share with you, there are six uh, principles, if you will, of... Um, um, six principles of resilient behavior, if you will, uh, that you can, that have been extracted by very smart people other than me, beyond me, um, uh, from looking at these. Okay. Well, that's gotta be really smart the planet. for a biochemist and a lawyer to tell us. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, anyways, these are, I mean, this work has come from lots of people, bio, biophysicists, uh, chemists, biologists, uh, mathematicians, all sorts of interesting people have pulled this information out, looking at the uh, evolutionary record and the ecological record. Um, and I will say that a lot of this is, uh, is taken from and synth synthesized from a book called Learning from the Octopus by Rafe Sagarin, who is an, ex an extraordinary human being who is no longer with us, unfortunately. Uh, but he did a great job applying it, actually, in the context of national security. Uh, how to apply these principles to a new way of looking at making our country uh, secure. And this was done right after 9-11. Uh, and so anyways, so you can apply this anywhere. I really, And the reason I talk about it is that I think this has incredible application for us in our personal lives, in our uh, communities, in our businesses, and obviously um, in our relationship to the planet. It's all the same. It's literally, I swear to God, all of this is just a fractal that you can scope it up, scope it down. That's how nature is. So everything I'm telling you, uh, I'll, I'll give you some examples where you can see it applied, you know, within a system in the body and you could scope it up to within a system in a country or on the planet. It's all the same. So let's see. And um, agriculture is going to be a big part of it, right? Yes. Agriculture is a really big part of it. It cool. is really So here's the deal. So I want to start by saying this. Um, we, we have a tendency, you know, I said we're the youngest kids on the block and we have a tendency to think of ourselves that way. But the reality is that almost every part of our, almost every system in the system that makes us up as human beings uh, is an incredibly ancient and well-established system that has lots of resiliency built into it. So, you know, if you think of our circulatory system or our immune system or our um, ocular system, um, our met metabolic system, you know, I mean, literally all of them, they're, they're taken from other species that came before us. And, and so they have all that intelligence and all that, all that resiliency built into them. Uh, literally the youngest part of us is our prefrontal cortex, 
which is the part of us that does, it's our executive function. It does all of the thinking. It's the part, it, it's function, it, it's a planner. It, it thinks logically and serially and puts things into, you know, a stacked order. Uh, and it's phenomenally successful at creating things. As you can see, we look at all the stuff we've created and we're, there's no, there's, I am not dissing our prefrontal cortex cortex at all it's just it's the youngest part of us and it and so the way we think actually doesn't have the history of all the other intelligent of all the other resilient systems that the rest of our body does and so the opportunity is to teach these other principles to this part of us that does all the thinking so that we can expand how we think and possibly think um more holistically or more if you if you are willing to accept this phrase more maturely <laughs> like the rest of the systems in our bodies and on the planet so my friend Dacia has this statement where she like she used to be a waitress and she would like sometimes go back in the kitchen and shake her head and she'd be like those people have definitely not evolved <laughs> and that was always her thing they haven't evolved yet <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to walk us through the six principles, um, and I'll send you I'll send you a a handout that you could add to the to the notes for people to look at later. I, awesome. Yeah. So very quickly, um, and they're not in any particular order, but this just tends to be the order in which I talk about them. Uh, so one, um, resilience systems don't spend time trying to plan for the unexpected. They don't try to plan for disruptive change you just can't there it's there are too many different ways it can happen and by definition disruption means you can't plan for it so why spend any time trying to do that it doesn't mean don't try to plan you know planning is good and it has its place but instead what resilient systems do is they have put time and energy into developing ways of being highly observant to unexpected changes in the environment and to be responsive to it so one super simple example that I like is if you think of a herd of deer, uh, which are, you know, let's say white-tailed deer, right? They, they aggregate as a, a herd. And if any one of them hears a noise that's unexpected, you know, their ears are highly tuned. They can hear, they can feel vibrations quite intensely. And so if they hear or see something or feel something that's unusual, immediately the white tail goes up every deer sees the white tail and everybody scatters. So that's, you know, a very simple example um, of, of a way to be responsive to unexpected change. And I, and then I, I'm going to, when I go through these, I'll also go through an example in our bodies. So what I like to think of is I use our immune system. So imagine that say, you know, I'm putting my hand over a gate and I can't see where the latch is. It's on the other side of the gate. And I go to open the latch and I catch myself on, you know, something, a splinter or something. And all of a sudden, um, I, I cut my finger. So immediately I have all these antibodies and all this immune system, uh, set up to identify that something has happened. So it, the immune system and the, specifically the antibodies in the immune system, they just kind of patrol our bloodstream. They're just kind of hanging out and waiting to see for something to happen that is unexpected. And when something happens, then a whole series of things go into motion to take care of that unexpected event. So that would be the example in the immune system. The next thing is that uh, resilient systems 
respond to disruptive change by having the capacity to be decentralized, which means um, there's a certain amount of autonomy to the systems to take care of what needs to happen in the case of a disruptive event. Nothing has to run up a flagpole, if you will, to decide it. So if you think about my cut finger, you know, what happens is in a fraction of a second, as you know, um, that there's, there are nerve endings in my finger. So I immediately get um, a signal that there's pain here. Something's happened. I move my hand away from the source of the pain. Um, a, chemical, a series of chemical cascades happen that send platelets to the cut to, you know, patch up the hole. And as I said, antibodies to go see if there's any bacteria that need to be eaten um, and maybe some adrenaline if uh, I need to do more move quickly or do more things. So all sorts of things happen that really don't engage my brain, my prefrontal cortex until the point where I can look at it and say, oh, okay, I should put water on this and maybe, you know, some something antiseptic and put a bandaid on it. Like that's my brain. But by that time, all sorts of things are taking place. If I had to try to coordinate the platelets and the nerve endings and the antibodies and all sorts of stuff, you know, I'd probably bleed out. So that's what happens with decentralized. Um, the, the ability to, and the, the, the thing about decentralized is you're giving autonomy. If you, you know, if you're anthropomorphizing this sort of, there's autonomy to all the different systems to take care of what needs to be taken care of, but there is a common goal and there's a common agreement that it's all for the, pur for a common purpose. And so in the case of my body, all my systems are in agreement that the goal is to keep me alive so that I can live, you know, ideally and procreate and produce progeny to keep the species going, if you will, you know, that's the common goal. Um, yeah. So in nature, there's lots of examples. There's a really cool one. If you ever saw, uh, um, Finding Dory, um, you know, that was, the, that was the sequel to Finding Nemo and there's this octopus in it who can camouflage himself at a drop of a hat. So, and, octopi have the capacity to camouflage themselves by just becoming part of whatever the uh, environment is around them. And that happens through thousands of what are called chromophores on their, each of their arms. It, it happens so quickly. There's no way that it could be uh, organized by a central logical thought process. So that's another example. So we've talked about, um, less planning and, and decentralization is being key. The next one is um, redundancies. So resilient systems have redundancies built in, and that's both in number and in variety. So, you know, we have two copies of our DNA. Lots of plants have three and four copies. And the reason for that is that if something happens with one gene, often you only need one copy of the gene in order to allow the systems and the, and the body to move forward. Um, so that's, that's a key reason why we've been able to be who we are today in our, in our immune system example, you know, as I said, we have antibodies. We don't just have one antibody. We have five classes of antibodies and we don't just have antibodies. We have lots of other cell types that are part of the immune system. And we don't just have one kind of immune system. We have two. We have one that runs in our bloodstream that comes out of, um, our blood cells B cells, and then we have a whole other system that runs through our thymus, and those come out of what we call T cells. So we have lots of redundancy built into 
um, our systems. Uh, and I don't know, I like to give the example in, in the natural world of centipedes. They have 100 feet, you know, well, guess what? They can probably lose up to 15% of them and not feel a thing. Uh, and I don't know that they actually need all 100, but it allows them to do to move across rocks and, and trees uh, with great speed and, and also to allow some of them to be lost over the course of their lifetimes. So that's, so that's the first three. Uh, shall I keep going? I, I think like listeners, I'm just wondering if they're wondering like, how does this relate to gardening? But we're going to get there, right? And because like, we're going to okay, talk gonna about the there. food system and these are kind of like examples, right? Yeah. So, okay. All right. Let me just run through the last. Two. So the other thing is network. Yeah, it's fine. Is networks, um, which is literally think uh, the fastest way to communicate information and change is um, through a network, which is a pathway of interconnected links. Uh, so like I said, that's how we communicate um, everything electronically, chemically, uh, neurologically. It's just, it, 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 it's, it's how all biological systems work. So when you're thinking about your business or your life, just think about networks as the most effective way to communicate change and information. And so related to that is the next one, which is symbiosis. And so what that means is that if you want to uh, experience quantum change or transformational change um, or impact, um, you must participate and engage other people, other components, other, other, you can't do everything yourself is really the longest and the shortest way to say that. There is no species on the planet that's still here today that does everything by itself, period. It's not possible. The most anyone or thing can, can maximize and it's, its impact by, by him or herself or itself is additive. It's only when you start engaging and relying and participating with others that you can get exponential change, um, which is essential for resiliency. So um, you want to be able to have impact around the world uh, in multiple locations, in multiple niches, in multiple um, environments. And uh, so that, that's key. And the last, because these are things we are not doing right now in a lot of ways, right? Well, in some ways, uh, in so, so what's interesting is that a lot of our, um, it, it is what we do in a crisis, like in a crisis at the community level, that is what communities tend to do. So if you think about what right. happened after Katrina or even after COVID here, there's so many examples of communities and neighbors just stepping up and taking care and participating and helping out and using networks to make that happen. But what can happen is that when we go into fear, which is what tends to happen at the uh, structural level, which is what happens at the higher, at the higher political levels, we, try, we, we contract and constrict and then try to plan out how to prevent this happening again. And that's when we go into non-resilient choices and behaviors. So, you know, there are lots of examples how at the governmental level, we might have had a higher 
positive impact in this country in response to COVID if we had been um, maybe there'd been more of an invitation, say, for participation among the states, if there'd been, if there'd been more of an opportunity for uh, a more, um, uh, what am I trying to say here, a more organized way of learning from what other countries who were experiencing COVID before us and applying that information, participating with them, partnering with them, you know, things like that. But it can be, it's very common that at the structural governmental level, in particular, we tend to constrict and go into fear. Go into fear. And I'm not just talking about the U.S. It's anything. It's any organization like that. That is a common response to disruptive change. And it's one of the ways in which the reason Rafe Sagarin wrote his book is it's one of the ways that we responded to 9-11, which actually just caused a lot of... It didn't have the impact it was intended to have, you know. And I can go down that road, but that's not really why we're here. So. Um, the last thing I'll say, and then we'll get into how this applies at the ag level. The last thing I'll say is that the last key to resilient systems is that they are recursive. And that means what nature does is she learns, a it learns along the way. So um, it basically just leans into what works and um, doesn't spend a lot of time just unpacking, if you will, what didn't work because it, if you think about disruptive change, all you're trying to do is figure out how to respond to it. And so you have to be willing to realize it's a learning all along the way and make changes as you go in response to what works. And you can actually um, graph this out of how nature has done this over the, over the course of time. And every example of a spiral that you see is an example of nature leaning into the yes, if you will. That is, that's a graphical expression. The Fibonacci spiral is a, is a graphical expression of leaning into the yes. So a key to working through disruptive change to being adaptive is being willing to learn along the way. Um, so that's key. And I will, you know, it, none of this is black and white. I'm not saying anybody's bad or good. It's just, that's, that's, um, that's yes. I feel like one of the things you're also going to tell us is part of being key is being healthy to begin with, like having a strong immune system. But am I right about that? Or well, I mean, sure. Yeah, making food choices that uh, speak to your well-being and, and all of that is part of uh, being able to be keeping all your systems working well. But what I will, the other thing I will say is that the way our mind works particularly when we're in fear it's a linear binary good bad way of thinking and that's just not the way resiliency works so um so for example you know if i take an example in our um from our the the food growing world You know, I would let's say that we so we've now moved into uh, a, a, an approach to agriculture that's driven by monocultures, and what ha one of the things that happens it turns out when you start growing monocrops is that you start you've disrupted a whole system of organisms, plant organisms that knew how to work together 
and we're in a relationship with the soil. I mean, that's a whole world that we're just starting to understand. Um, we didn't think that there was much happening underneath the soil once upon a time. And now we're learning, oh my gosh, it's just incredibly um, elegant and intelligent and far, far more complex than anybody gave it any thought. At any rate, but one of the things that happens when you disrupt a system, say by starting a monocrop and keeping it going, is you start to get uh, impacts to the quality of the product that you're trying to grow. And you start to get, maybe you get plants you don't want, and we call those weeds. Maybe you get pests you don't want, and we call those pests or bugs of some kind. And and so our our mindset is, well, we will just develop, we'll just get rid of it. We'll just kill it. You know, and so we develop either chemicals or some other means for getting rid of stuff. You know, let's say dicamba or um, glyphosate or whatever it might be. The intention is that this is going to get rid of that thing which we don't like. Um, so we spend gobs of money, time and energy developing that which we think will get rid of that which we don't want. And so billions of dollars later we you know all of the farmers around the world lots of them anyways investing in the chemicals that that whole mindset has been promoted um at a corporate level and at a governmental level and just it's a whole mindset now and it worked for four or five years you know but then over time within four or five years or maybe within five to ten years maybe uh the the glyphosate let's just look at glyphosate and glyphosate is just one of many many chemicals but let's just look at glyphosate so within the first five years it was just a, it was a godsend for farmers because they didn't have to deal with weeds how fabulous but within five years they start to get glyphosate resistant weeds so now they so that in our binary world it's like oh okay they've come back let's just add more or let's make it stronger or let's do something else so we come up with a combination or a cocktail or you put it on more you know so we we're still in a mindset excuse me we're still in a mindset of um a binary mindset but if you if you if you look at it from the other side so you go down under the soil and you look at it from the plant or the soil organisms point of view this chemical that is now being applied to the plant root or the soil from the perspective of that plant, which has been here from, for somewhere around a hundred million years or that soil organism, which has probably been here over a billion years. That's just a disruptive event. It's nothing more or less. It's just a disruptive event. It's like, huh? Okay. And what will they do? They will adapt. They will respond and they'll just lean into how do I work with this? This is a new change in my environment. I have to work with it. And they'll, you know, lots of, lots of members of the species will die, but the species will survive because it is made up of lots of systems within it that has known how to get through disruption. And so that's what shows up three or four years later where now we've got, you know, glyphosate resistant weeds or whatever. They just adapt it. And it, Honestly and truly, it does not matter um, what you do, what we as humans, quote unquote, do to, quote unquote, kill or eradicate or whatever these organisms, they will just adapt. That is just, they've got 
they're, they've got too many systems built into them. Instead, what would be appropriate would be to work with them, to be part of the system. To, and that's what permaculture is. That's what regenerative agriculture is. That's where um, all of that intelligence of, of system agriculture comes from. Uh, it is a, it's an illusion and it's a non-functional uh, approach to think that we have the skill set to get rid of any other system that's been around literally millions of years longer than us. So I'm going to stop here and see if you've got questions. So, well, I was just about to say, so what do we do about this? But is, is that what we do? We practice permaculture techniques? And yeah, things like I mean, that? so what, what, my, what we do about it is we shift how we think. And that's why I talk about, so shifting our thinking from one of, that I, as a human being, know more you know, we didn't, we used to think of soil as just nothing but something brown that didn't, you know, maybe had some value to it because you could manage the tilth and this, that, or the other thing. But we did not have any understanding of the incredible relationship between plants and soil and everything else that we don't quote unquote see easily. And all I'm saying by that is there is a mindset to the way we think as humans that puts us at the top of a food chain, at the top as the most intelligent. And it's limiting. And that mindset also is the very thing that, in my humble opinion, impedes us from being able to develop the capacity to survive and be sustainable on this planet. So the invitation is to open the way we think to include these principles of resiliency, to think, to think about how can I be uh, less, more decentralized? How can I build more observancy and responsiveness into the way I uh, work in my business or, or develop my relationship with my family? How can I build redundancies and networks in here and be more adaptive and recursive? It's, it's just shifting how we think, because the more we shift how we think, the more we will be actually able to see, and the more we can engage with our environment, and the more we will be able to develop relationships among ourselves and, every, and everybody else on the planet and everything else on the planet that will allow us to, you know, survive and, and remain as a viable species on the planet. I, I, I honestly think that our capacity to survive as a species is limited by our, our, the way we think. And this is a way to think differently. So, um, and, and it's literally just, it is just, uh, it's extracting from lots of sustainable agricultural systems. I'm just trying to talk about it from the thinking approach. Does part of it have to do with like not having these huge monocultures and like people growing? You you talked in the beginning about trying to get back to more people growing our food that we used to grow 70% of our food and now we, what'd you say? Grow yeah, it's about 7% now. Yeah. So, right. And that's so, just, isn't, what, right. So, yes. So, I mean, just to that piece about that's, that's, I'm referring to the state of Montana when I say that. And what I mean is that even though agriculture is a leading industry in the state of Montana, most of the food that is grown here is exported. And so most of the food that is eaten here is imported. 
right? That's as in terms of a system, a food system, that's not very sustainable. Why? Because the food is not locally accessible and it's not renewable because we're buying so much stuff from quite a long ways away. If we spent more, if more of the food that we grew here, we actually ate here, that would create a more sustainable food system for the state of Montana. So that's that. Um, and yes, uh, there is the evidence, I think literally, honestly, is incontrovertible that if we move to agriculture that works in relationship to the, to the environment and the organisms that are in and on the planet in the area where we're growing, we will, that is a far more sustainable system and it is a far more resilient system. And one more thing about, one more thing about the sustainability. One of the things that COVID pointed out was the, the reliance on having our food come in from a distance. We felt disruptions in our food systems and our capacity of, of Montanans, particularly Montanans, food insecure Montanans to get access to food. Once there was a disruption in the system, like there were less trucks coming through, it was harder to get food. And this was really not that big a disruption, but people still felt the impact at the same time. Um, um, big ag, which is relies on fertilizers and chemicals coming from manufacturer operations, you know, all over the world, a disruption in their supply in, significantly impacts their capacity to grow the food that they're contracted to grow. Um, and I mean, there's just all sorts of things. So that, so literally monocropping is, it's not sustainable because the inputs that are needed to manage large monocrops are, are at the effect of disruptive change. All the inputs come from a distance. They're expensive. So you have to have money in order to get them. Um, so there's lots of things, components to the way they work that relies on access to cash and access to um, a distribution system. Right there, they're at risk um, from a sustainability perspective. And in terms of resiliency for growing quality food that feeds the humans more people growing locally and more people growing in a more permaculture or a regenerative relationship with the organisms around them, the more resilient the food system will be. You know, I was talking to this woman last week about, she sent us the soil kit thing for testing our thing, but she was saying that the most, um, she's really interested in international agriculture practices and the most just amazing one she saw was down in Cuba. Um, and just like things that are going oh, on yeah. there. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I don't know that much about it, but I feel like it has a little bit to do with what you're saying because they didn't... probably don't have a lot of the money. I feel like somewhere I've heard this before or I read it or I learned about it, but like, because they don't have a lot of money to invest that, they figured out other ways and that's a lot of why organic farming has really changed and helped them become more um, able to grow yeah. their population because they're kind of they, cut off from the world. Yes. 1959 came. Um, 
and which is when Castro came into power and ostracized by the rest of the world, living on a shoestring. And that is a disruptive change to that country. Their access to uh, chemical fertilizers or any other way of growing was completely cut off. Their access to seed was cut off. They had to start saving their seed and save it fast. And so what's happened in the last, uh, what are we now at, 75 years? They're experts at um, organic, regenerative agriculture practices and seed saving. And do they have a sustainable system? Absolutely. Why? Because they have to feed themselves. That population only survives if they can feed themselves. Were they getting food from anywhere else? Not a whole lot. So they developed systems that created a sustainable growing system with renewable inputs that are locally accessible. They are a great example of all of these principles. Cool. Well, so... Yeah. What do you think listeners, like, what do you want their big takeaway we, to be like? What can they do? How can they implement some change in their particular garden or their buying habits or their educating um, their neighbors or I don't know. Um, so, yeah, let's look at a Let's look at a backyard garden. Cool. Uh, yeah, I would. Um, Honestly, the, I, I would start by uh, leaning into growing regeneratively. And what does that mean if you're a backyard grower? That means uh, using, using compost or worm castings for your, to feed your soil, to understand that there's a relationship between the soil and the soil microbes and your plant. I mean, that is a whole other conversation we could have because it is, it's, it's extraordinary that relationship. There's an intelligence there that we are, we're just starting to scratch the surface of it. Um, so, you know, the, um, the way we used to grow tilling the ground is just not very helpful. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're just actually destroying the homes of all the microbes that live in the soil that take time to build that soil. So it's actually, it, you end up creating what we would call a more honest garden that might look a little more chaotic to the naked eye, but that actually is one where the plants are in relationship with each other and with the soil and the soil microbes. So companion planting is really important. Um, feeding really our job as growers is to feed the soil because the soil feed, you're feeding the microbes in the soil. And if you feed those microbes, they're the ones that feed your plants. So, you know, when I talked about our immune system and our digestive system, let's look at our digestive system. We have, you know, everybody knows now about the microbiomes in our gut, right? And the role that the microbes play in our gut for digesting our food. We get our nutrition because of the, the and that's its own system, all the interrelationship of those microbes in our gut. They're the ones that break down the food and extract the nutrients that then get um, uh, extracted out of our small intestines and move into our circulatory system to be delivered to all of our cells that allow us to thrive as human beings. A very analogous system happens with plants. It's just that their digestive system is outside the plant. It's, it's associated with their roots. All the microbes that are around the root um, the root cells and the, uh, the root hairs, uh, 
are the digestive components of the food that the plant needs. So it's literally exactly the same system. It's just outside. And in addition, just as we have an immune system, a lot of the immune system that's in plants is outside and associated with the roots of the plant. So when I talked about symbiosis, this is an extraordinary relation, this extraordinary example, the plants survive and have thrived because of the relationship that they have with soil microbes and vice versa. It's a, it's definitely a symbiotic relationship. Um, 60% of the sugars that plants generate and create through photosynthesis is actually delivered from the plant roots to the microbes in the soil. It's, it's intended to feed those microbes so that they will then do the digestion and immune system work that the plant needs. Uh, there was some reason I said all this. So I guess back to our backyard grower, you want to, your, our job really is to maintain the health of the soil microbes and they will, they will do the work of nourishing and feeding our plants and providing them with the nutrients and minerals and vitamins that we eat, we need, and which is why we eat the food that we eat. So the source of all that really is the microbes in the soil. And the less we do to disrupt that or interfere with it, the better. So stay away from chemical fertilizers, keep the miracle grow on the shelf. Um, all that stuff actually impedes the relationship between the plant and the, and the soil microbes. Uh, the, probably the best thing you can do is give it quality, biologically live compost or worm castings. They are full of life, full of the microbes that your plants need. And if you provide that to the soil and just and water the soil uh, and, and keep the relationship between the soil and the plant undisturbed, you will be creating, they will, they will multiply and integrate properly to extract the nutrients from the rock and the soil and provide it to the plants. So can I put like a thing in here, just like it also makes me think like, even if you don't have a garden, like this is so true with your lawn. Like I'm just picturing all those stupid little yellow flags. Like even last year when I was working at the Buffalo in the summer and every time I walked back to my car, right outside the first interstate bank there, there's those dang same little yellow flags that are all over New York in my mom's yard. Like you do not need to put fertilizer on your lawn the microbes that make your lawn healthy and grow fresh are the exact same microbes you want right yes absolutely absolutely so even if you just have a lawn yeah this applies maybe, maybe even more yeah so. <laughs> and you know weeds which are plants that we don't like um are they're actually indicators and they're information you know actually uh they're indicator plants and uh, they called they called pioneer plants, and they show up they show up whenever we have uh, a disruption or a disturbance in the soil. You know, so when we when we you know whenever we turn stuff up and or we you know whenever there's construction and you you pull back the topsoil, that's a disturbance. And and uh, weeds tend to be or pioneer plants are plants that grow fast, they're annuals, and which means that they produce seed the first year and they produce a lot of seed. And the reason for that is because if you scope up the system to the planet and think about it from a planet's perspective, the planet does not like to have bare soil. 
because you, you're just losing, presumably you're just losing nutrients to the, to the wind, you know, and if you look at the planet, there's just really isn't anywhere naturally where there is bare soil. It's all covered, whether it's covered with dandelions or conifer forest or prairie grass or an alfalfa field or basil. It doesn't matter. It's covered. Um, and so left to its own devices, the system components of the planet will cover it immediately. And that's weeds are really good at that. That's their job. Um, and when we, when, we, when we artificially fertilize our ground for our lawns or anything like that, we're actually telling the soil microbes that they're not needed, so they go away. And uh, we create a sterile, a fairly sterile environment that's actually quite attractive to. Uh, it's it's like a pioneer surface that the weeds like. Yeah. I keep thinking of my friend last year. So I had a friend who bought a house a year ago, December, and their yard was just completely filled with dandelions. And you, it was just so obvious to me that the soil was so unhealthy. Like you could see there were like big patches of dirt between all the dandelions. And I was just like, you know, what you need to do more than anything is you could just, you could, I could just tell her soil was just so unhealthy. It was just dry and, and I, I, like a pale color brown. And just, I was like, you should just start with one. It was, it was a huge lawn. It was a giant lawn. It was a house on a corner. And I just felt like what she needed to do was like focus on one part of that lawn. And then as it got nicer to what she wanted, she should add some clover to it. Like my mom too in New York, like they have all these big brown bear spots. And I'm like, you need more clover. I have clover. You don't have enough clover as far as I'm concerned. Like, I don't know, just things like that to help it. Um, Cause like you said, you, nowhere does it want to have bare right. soil. And there's so many examples of once people start to literally regenerate the soil through, through practices, um, you know, it, the, the rule of thumb used to be that it would take somewhere between a hundred and a thousand years to regenerate an inch of soil, to grow an inch of soil that like that's in on nature's scale. That's what it took. And that was based on a way of thinking that made sense at the time. What we're learning is that actually, if you feed the soil microbes, there are, there are myriad examples of farms where people are generating inches of soil within, you know, a handful of years. Um, so you can, you can, uh, and then another phrase I've heard recently, and I think this is really important, is there is no such thing as bad soil. There's just um, maybe not intelligent management of the soil. And by that, what what that person meant was every soil can be regenerated. Every soil can be uh, replenished. Uh, it's literally just providing the biological life back in and feeding the biological life. One of the amazing things about dandelions is that one of the things that's so amazing about them is they have this huge taproot, right? For anybody who's trying to get rid of them, it's almost impossible to do it by, by digging out that root. Yeah. Well, the value of that root is that it can go way down deep. It can, it can push its way through all kinds of crazy soil, you know, compacted soil. And what it's doing is pulling nutrients from way down deep and bringing it up to the surface. 
And then as that plant dies, now those nutrients are in that biomass that will eventually degrade. And over time, all those nutrients will come forward. So the dandelion serves a very valuable purpose. You, it's just that you can, you can move that along a whole lot faster by, this is why people say, you know, applying a lot of biological uh, biomass on it. So, you know, uh, if you're starting with, if you're starting with the degraded soil, you would start maybe by putting a lot of um, leaf mulch and um, things that are going to degrade both green manure and brown manure, and then applying biology to it in the form of active compost or worm castings, which has a lot of biological life in it, and letting that biology then start to eat and break down the material you put on it. And they will then eventually um, start to break down and and uh, change the structure of the degraded soil and, and move into that degraded soil space and bring life to it. And there's just myriad examples of being able to, once you start to break up that compacted soil, now you can get air in there and then you can get water in there. And now you have room for more plants to grow deeply and just, it all builds on itself. The system knows what to do. All we need to do is provide the input at the beginning and let it take care of itself. You know, another example people often say is you've never seen anybody go in and fertilize a forest, you know, forests seem to do pretty well all by themselves why because they they have this relationship of biomass that's feeding and, and providing nourishment to the microbes that are under the ground you know who else talked about this a lot was danny swan came on my show and talked about them going into places and in, i want to say it's detroit it's the ohio valley or something but right outside of detroit i think where they were going, like where they were, they were like finding, you know, buildings and just such garbage, like into these old abandoned lots and like covering it with cardboard and laying down huge amounts of compost and eventually turning that soil back to healthy. Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. Yep. Food there. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. Do you want to talk about any of the gardens you've been tending? Didn't you tend like four gardens last year and said you were going to do it again this year? But then I don't know if you ever got the time to get it started because you've been so busy with Aero and all the um, COVID and the food. I have five gardens. I have five gardens this year, which is crazy. Yeah. Oh my goodness. One of the. Well, tell us what's growing. Um, well, I'm I'm endeavoring to resupply my um, seed stock because COVID COVID. Um, had a huge impact on anybody who was selling seeds uh, in the sense that it, it created a, um, a desire for lots of people to, to buy seeds. And I'm hoping that a lot of that desire was so that people could then put them in the ground and grow food. Uh, but nonetheless, um, probably all, all seed companies experienced uh, a very high increase in their sales and therefore reduction in their seed stock. So I'm endeavoring to rebuild my seed stock. So I have, I'm growing out all my tomato varieties this year, which I, I've never done before. I usually only grow out a couple at a time, but I, I, I got down to the nubbins in terms of my tomato and, and pepper seed supply and some of my other seed supplies. 
so anyways, that's one of the big things I'm doing and that's different because I'm, I'm needing to scale both in variety and in quantity. And that's, uh, it, that's just a lot, it, you know, it's exponential growth. So we'll see how, what happens there. Uh, that is also true. You know, I'm a teeny weeny little company and, but I can guarantee you that that impact is probably being felt across all seed companies. Um, so we'll see what next spring and summer brings. Um, so like how many tomato plants do you have? And like, why do you have five gardens? Because just like, so you have space from different people that are like, here, I have some garden space that you can. Yeah. It's a combination. It's a combination of things. It's, it's one, it's access, it's access to land that I don't own. And two, uh, if I want to grow things that might cross, uh, or cross pollinate rather, uh, it allows me to grow them in different locations that I feel that where, where the risk of, uh, cross pollination is not an issue. Um, so that's, that's another reason I do it. Yeah. And and what's that like? Do you have to go water each place every day or like, do you have a schedule where like you go to this place on Monday and this place yeah. on Wednesday or so like, how I, does that work? Are they close enough that you can go um, It depends on the time of year and what needs doing. Yeah. They're all, I mean, they're all certainly, they're all within the whitefish area, whitefish Columbia area, whitefish Columbia falls area rather. Um, but uh, I believe in what timers for my watering systems um, that saves me and saves the plants. Um, but I also grow them in a way that's uh, as much as possible regeneratively. So there's a lot of mulch on them and they don't actually need as much water as they might if I had bare ground between my plants. You know, I have, I have, uh, I kind of grow them in a, in a well that's, that's surrounded by other plants and mulch material. So uh, that helps a lot. Um, that's a key, key component. You know, Patty Armbruster, who I know has been on your show a, a couple of times, um, she, she has her system set up so well that she's going to leave town for, I, I've known her to leave town for 10 days in the height of July. And she's watered her garden at the start before she goes and she can leave it completely confident that everything is going to be moist and uh, uh, well cared for because of the humidity uh, in the local environment and the water system that she's got. So there's a way to grow things that, um, is not so labor intensive. It's messy looking if you're not used to it, by the way. <laughs> what does your water system look like? Um, so I, I, like, are those, those little itty bitty teeny tiny hoses that like, I don't know, to me, they almost remind me of like a hoop that I've seen, or like, is it a regular hose just hooked up to a timer? It like, depends on the garden. I, I have two beds in the community garden and those are hand water only. So I hand water those. Um, I have a drip irrigation system in a couple of my gardens and those are on timers. Um, I have an overhead watering system in one of my gardens that's also on a timer. Uh, I, I, I value timers because they're... Um, and I, and I think drip irrigation is very helpful because it, it delivers water, you know, uh, in a timely amount. And then if you have a timer on it, that works well. I use a filter 
I either I'm either on a well or I use a filter that dechlorinates the water. I think that's very important. So I take care of that. Um, the one thing I don't like about drip systems is that you know it's a fair amount of plastic. That's how they work. And so, in an ideal scene, I wouldn't be using it. But I I do. They're an extraordinary uh, time saver for sure. Mulching is extremely important for anybody who's growing, whether it's straw or grass clippings, as long as you don't chemicalize your, your grass. Um, that, that's a great way to, to keep any soil surface covered on your garden and keep the soil uh, covered moist. Uh, if you've got bare soil, you know, it's just going to increase the transpiration and the evaporation of whatever moisture is in the soil. If you got it covered, you're going to keep it in. It's like an umbrella for your soil. You can do that. You can also do it by, you know, uh, plant, planting plants with large surface, leaf surface areas. So that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the values of squash plants in, in the three sisters uh, system of corn beans and squash this one of the things that the squash does is it covers the surface area around the corn and helps keep the beans and the corn roots so soil moist over longer periods of time so that's an easy way to, to cover your soil surface and help you reduce your water usage and your use of yeah that's it and and create happier plants I also highly recommend periodically, at least once a week, if you can, um, uh, washing your plants, if you will, with a foliar spray that you make from worm castings or compost tea. Uh, lots of cities and towns have access to um, quality compost that you could then make tea out of or there are some places where they actually make the tea for you it's super easy to make your own it's super easy to have a worm bin it really really is i invite people to do the work of creating one where they live um, and making their own worm castings and their own worm tea it's just it's i mean talk about locally accessible renewable inputs it just doesn't get any better than that and worms will eat your table scraps it's just all that's all the stuff that you don't that you cut off when you're cutting your vegetables or you know that you might not eat it's a family i produce a ton of food scraps that i can't eat and that my worms make into food for me uh and i'm one person so imagine what a family of four could do it's just it's so easy um and done right which is not hard. And it's not, it's not messy. Like I was like so hesitant about having a worm bin. And when I have one in my classroom, it was so not messy. It was so yep. easy to do. I totally agree. I encourage, I don't even understand people that don't compost. It just yeah. blows my mind. Well, yeah. Compost can be, you know, you may need a space outside, but you can do a worm bin literally in your house. Um, they don't, as you say, they don't smell. Yeah, and, don't um, smell. and you, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's like money in the bank <laughs> working for it. So, yeah. So yes, completely. Um, and if I can do it, <laughs> anybody can. <laughs> what was I, oh, I was going to say something about, um, well, at one point you mentioned companion planting, like are peppers and tomatoes? No, they're just, they're both kinds. They're, they're both, um, they're, they're both, uh, 
nightshade plants. Um, and so the thing about this, uh, I'm just going to make a detour here for a quick second. Uh, they're easy to save seed from because if you think about it, what you what we eat is the fruit, whether it's the tomato or the pepper. And so for the most part, at least of the peppers I grow anyways, by the time we eat that fruit, if it's a red pepper or certainly a tomato, the seed is ripe. And so when you're growing that crop to production for, to food production, you're also growing it to seed production. And if that's different from, Oh, that's yeah. a good point from exactly. like lettuce or radishes right. or something or carrots right. or different thing, whole different things. So, so I'm, I'm, so anyways, that's, that's why I'm growing them both now. Um, yeah, that's a whole different thing. Uh, so companion planting. So companion planting is uh, a plant that has some other positive impact for a plant that, you're wanting to grow. So um, like the brassicas are um, your kales and your cabbages and your collars, cauliflower, broccoli, all of those, they're called, called they're in a genus called brassica. And um, they can be susceptible to cabbage leaf moth, that white moth with the little black spots on it. One black spot, actually. Uh, you may or may not be, thinking of right now but anyways they're very common and they had they started as a teeny weeny little green caterpillar and they they're the ones that make the holes on your on your cabbage um but you can interplant them with marigolds or calendula and that will that will uh yeah impede the the caterpillars the, so that the the moths are territorial and they they lay eggs on the baby plants and then those eggs turn into caterpillars and then they eat the cabbage but um they don't seem to like marigolds or calendula and so if you interplant your brassicas with them that's one way to um discourage the moths from coming into the area where you've got your brassicas another plant is it that's a good companion plant for that is our nasturtiums because they tend to actually attract the butterfly those moths so if you plant the nasturtiums someplace else they'll um somewhere else in your garden they, they're they're an attractant for the for the moths so those are two examples of companion plants um Another thing you, that's a good companion plant are uh, for brassicas, for example, are, or anything that you're trying to keep a pest from coming to are your aromatic plants like your mints and your lavenders, um, anything that makes an oil, um, because a lot of the insects that would be laying eggs on the plant don't seem to like plants that produce oils like that. So that's those are some other examples interplanting, you know, thyme or anything in the mint family, oregano, marjoram, anything like that uh, around brassicas. It seems to be helpful as well. Um, yeah, so those are some examples of companion planting. And there's a ton of information on that, you know, both in the literature and, and online. It's just a ton of information. I think I even have some resources on my website. Just, you know, yeah. Well, do you want to tell listeners what your website is? You're probably like, Jackie, we've been on the phone for a really long time. <laughs> my, 
When are you going to quit asking <laughs> My questions? seed company website is goodseedco.net. Um, and it has both um, a shop where you can buy uh, your seeds, and it also has resources on everything that I've been learning, uh, you know, in my short tenure with the company. Uh, on, And one of them, I'm pretty sure, is, is companion planting. Um, so, yeah, there's resources there. And as I said, there's just a ton of good resources online as well. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And just, I think listeners are going to be fascinated with this and they're going to be happy about a lot of the things they're doing and maybe got some new ideas for other things they're doing, or at least um, maybe a little more perspective on why it's so important. And so, um, you know, just talking about our soil and how I love your passion for creating compost bins and and homes. Boy, it's the easiest thing you can do. And you don't really have to understand how, how it works. Just appreciate that it's it's doing the work for us. You know, they, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for all of the work that you do, Jackie. Um, I, this, your podcast is an incredibly valuable resource in the podcast sphere. And, um, and you know, just, to anybody who listens, it's, it's really great. I really appreciate it. Well, it's only great because of amazing guests like you and Patty Armbruster and everybody else who's been on my show and shared their garden journey and teaches us. I just feel like my show is a success because we all learn yeah. a ton um, of good stuff. And it just, it makes me feel hopeful because it's been a rough ride this 2020. Hasn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness i'm just um i don't even know what to think i i don't i completely have no idea yep. what to think so stay safe, yes you too Robin. sweetie um and as you say let's get growing oh, cool perfect way to end okay so i'm shutting the recording off but 50 by 60 for New England, they want to get the food system in New England up to 50% local production by 2060. And uh, I, I want to see us do something like that here in Montana. Nice. So what are the yeah. steps? Like you're just reaching out to other groups and then... Right now I'm, I'm drafting a white, what's called a white paper that I want to, that I want circulated and want as many organizations to sign as possible. And then we're going to deliver it to the governor's office and say get behind this campaign and create a council to make it happen and let's do it. Like there is no reason why we can't do this. And we have so many organizations and people who are skilled at figuring out how to do this. Like we don't have to develop the mindset, you know, the brains, whatever we have the brain power. We just need, and we don't have to recreate the wheel. There's other people doing right, and and every every Montanan has felt the impact of a of a disruption. COVID was a disruption, you know. Yeah, um, and, and I don't even think we've started to feel it. I think we're no. headed for right. I so I I can't imagine one person. I literally cannot find, imagine one person who would say that's not a good idea, <laughs> you know. And it's, we just got to get the power, we got to get the government, the governmental power behind it to help build the infrastructure because we need infrastructure and we need a way to get it to support, support people in valuing 
Montana products and paying what they're worth, you know, because we, we, we pay shit for our food. We pay, you know, 10 feet. It's the, what's his name? Purdue was so proud saying, uh, Secretary of Agriculture was so proud saying that, that uh, Americans pay less than 10% of their income goes to food. You know, that's insane. 30% of our income should go for food. Every, you know, everything else should be less. Um, the reason it's so little is because it's all subsidized. And it's all subsidized because it's all crap. You know, anyways, I don't want to go down that road. But that's another conversation. You don't, I want to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I'd love another, another conversation. That's another conversation. But okay. so I, I don't have time for what I'm doing, but I can't not do it. So that's what I'm doing. That's how I feel about my podcast. Like, right? I just feel like it, it, it keeps me sane and like, I'm doing something at least positive with all this crazy negative stuff going on around me. I just so thankful that I have the listeners I have and that they keep me refreshed and keep going because I just feel like a lot of I just feel like it's insane out there. Like yeah. I, there are days I'm scared to like wear a mask that someone's going to like attack me. Like really? after seeing that guy in whitefish, I've had heated conversation. This part of why I'm taking a three day break from social media. Like I am literally scared to be wearing a scarf or I usually wear a scarf because I feel like a mask is just inciting trouble up here. And, wow. it, and in places in Whitefish too. Yeah. I am like nervous to be out in public. I feel like hmm. it is so like, <gasps> you liberal Democrat, how dare you wearing a mask? Huh. I, That's I, 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 I did not feel that way until the last week or so. Okay. But now I feel like since that guy, did you see that picture of that, you know, when that guy in Whitefish who like attacked that, the, the Black Lives Matter protesters? Oh yeah, yeah. Were there and yeah, so yeah. i posted i shared that and like people were literally like like cursing on my feed cursing at people who had responded to it and just telling them you know f you and all this stuff and i was like this is a little intense and i feel like like mike and i went to the doctor one day and i was wearing the scarf and we're waiting outside because the doctor's office says you know, stand in line, we'll come get you. The woman at the front's taking the temperatures. And he just refused to like stand in line. He cut right in front of us. He held the door open and was like standing in the faces of like her, the nurse who was trying to take the temperatures of the people in front of us. He was like just totally in their face. And just, I completely felt like he was being rude to us because I was standing there with a scarf. And oh. I feel like, I feel it's pretty intense around here. Wow. Myself. I could be imagining it. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. It's just very like I haven't hardly seen anyone in a mask in Eureka in the last week. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. And I to be honest, I, I, I spend so much time alone, you know. And I keep one in the car because I feel like where I deliver seeds, I, that's me being respectful. I always wear a mask when I go in. And then there are stores that say we we are requesting that our shoppers wear masks i'm like okay i'll sure why not yeah that's what i feel like i'm like what the like i don't understand i'm like i don't understand what's changed the only thing we socially distance we wore masks we knocked the curve down people were good 
why is it okay all of a sudden to be everywhere? And people are like, oh, well, you were home for 21 days, weren't you? You were home for, four, you yeah. haven't seen it. You don't have it. You're not showing any symptoms. Like, I'm hearing the craziest stuff. I'm like, I, I okay. I don't know. I don't know. I got to go, Robin. I love okay, you. you Stay care. safe. Okay. okay, bye. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon. It's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden. And just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey, uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. The amazing Patty Armbruster is going to offer the most incredible composting class you'll ever take completely online Saturday, July 18th, 2020. It's only $37 and you will get a seat. You will get a copy of the replay. You will get to pick her brain, question and answers. Um, we are just going to rock the composting. How to do composting the most efficient, effective, best way to improve the results in your garden today. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.